0: Take to speak out against orthodoxies in an age of outrage? Well, this is something that my guest on today's program has spent years contemplating, interviewing people from all walks of life who have managed to stick to their principles in the face of an online mobbing and not back down. Catherine Brodsky is a Canadian writer and commentator and the author of No Apologies, How to Find and Free Your Voice in the Age of Outrage, Lessons for the Silenced Majority. Catherine Brodsky is my guest today on Lean Out. Catherine, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you so much for having me, Tara. It's really nice to have you on. Your your book is written for the silent majority, those who are concerned with the direction our culture is headed, but have not maybe had the courage yet to speak out about it. And you look at case studies of individuals who have been the target of outrage mobs and, and ask what lessons can be learned from their stories. I want to start today with your own story. You yourself have been the target of one of these mobs. Tell us about that experience and and how it shaped your thinking for this book.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's funny because um, I've had a little bit of distance now, and I've had some time to reflect on this particular story that happened to me. But at the time, it was just so incredibly intense. And for me, it was a process of... Realizing that there was something a little bit off about the culture where people were not free to speak as they as they wish, and we had the stifling of conversations. And in my own case, you know, I was gradually trying to find my own voice. And I sort of describe it as a bit of a whimper at the time. And I also ran a group for women, women writers, and it was a job board. And it was an offshoot of another bigger group on Facebook. It was dedicated for, you know, women writers and providing resources, providing advice. And my group, which was essentially just a job board, and we provided, you know, some mentorship, some guidance, some resources for women. And it ran pretty smoothly. You know, I think people benefited a lot. Uh, The mentorship program I launched was featured in the New York Times. So everything was going pretty well until dum 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 as they say there was a woman who posted a job opportunity at fox news and apparently that was sacrilegious to the group and they started to really attack her you know very harsh personal attacks just for posting a job opportunity And as somebody who ran the group at the time, I felt like I had a duty to step in and and stop the harassment. So I posted a very, in my view, neutral sort of post. And I said, listen, let's not let's refrain from personal attacks. Let's refrain from politics in the group. And, you know, there's been a lot of coming apart lately. Let's come together. I thought that was a fairly neutral Post at the time, as I describe it, a little bit kumbaya. And it seems like a lot of people disagreed with that. And so they turned their attention to me and they started calling me a white supremacist, said that I'd soon let the KKK recruit. And at the time, I was also, I had a different mind state at the time. I really believed in engaging with all people and any kind of criticism. And so I did for a while. And One of the things that they said to me is, well, I can't take politics out of the group because inherently a group for women is political. So I said, well, okay, well, I don't want politics in the group because this is what happens. So why don't I open it up for everybody? And basically here, you can have a month to leave if you're not interested in staying in the group. You could start your own group. You know, I tried to be accommodating, but at the same time, I I did know that I was taking a certain kind of stand, and the mob really escalated. So they started trying to reach out to editors to make sure that I would never work with them again. They tried to dox me. I was getting many, many harassing emails and messages. I got, you know, one of the most memorable was photos of mobs with tiki torches saying, you know, we have very long memories. So it really, really escalated and people were downvoting my content. It was just kind of a a madhouse, something I've never expected. And I should say that I'm kind of a people pleaser in many ways. And so to me, I think at the time it felt particularly intense to have so many people think I'm on the wrong side of things. But also, in that time, I was getting messages from people saying, look, I see what's happening to you, and it's not right. But I feel so ashamed that I cannot speak. I feel too scared to speak up. People were also sharing their own stories of harassment, cancellations, people who never recovered, people who lost their jobs, people who lost their careers, their tribes, which is very important to individuals. And I also started looking at things a little bit differently where, you know, before, like I said, I was very keen to engage with everyone and I was very keen to consider everyone's position, but I turned it around a little bit and I thought, what if I disagreed with myself, you know, intensely, how would I behave? What would I do? And I come to the conclusion that I would never behave in those ways. Those are bullying tactics. That's a mob. And, you know, it's one thing when somebody sent me criticism and they phrased it politely and thoughtfully, I would absolutely always consider that. But those people who would come at me wanting to destroy me, you know, because they disagreed with something, those are not the voices that I was keen to listen to. But also because I was getting all these messages, I've realized, well, these people, people are so scared And there's so many of them. And I think there's a lot more people with common sense and common decency out there, but their voice is missing from the conversation. So what's happening is these bullies, and that's what they are. I mean, I've been bullied in high school, so I have some familiarity with with bullies and they're really not very different from that. It's just that they think that they have some righteous cause. Those bullies are the ones dictating our daily lives. And that's why, you know, I felt the need to start speaking and using my voice, you know, even on behalf of people who might be too afraid right now. Somehow I found it with, within myself to do that. And I thought, you know, my life might be over. And I wrote a piece for Newsweek, which was calling out these particular bullies. And I thought that piece, if I publish that, that's it. I'm, uh, I'm, I am I'm, will never work as a writer again. But I think it also very much opened up my voice, and I felt I felt that I really needed to not be one of the silenced voice and take a stand a stand even if it does cost me something. And I think I got some things in return as well, like more authentic relationships, for example.
0: I think you bring a unique perspective. It- to this, as well, as you flag in in the beginning of the book, we're both Canadian citizens, but yes. you were actually born in the Soviet Union. Tell us a little bit about how those sort of early years living under communism shaped your perspective on all of this,
1: yeah. so I mean, I was fairly young when i uh, so I was born in the Soviet Union, the part that's now Ukraine. And I was fairly young when I left, but you know, I grew up in my parents' household, right and and they throughout the years, would tell me about their lives under communism, sort of the self-silencing effect of it that was very, ran very, very deep. There was a lot of subversive writing that was going on because you could tell things were sort of boiling up to the surface, but you couldn't say things openly or it would cost you, you know, it could even cost you your life But uh, at certain points, but it certainly cost people opportunities. Violence was not un- unheard of. My family is also Jewish, so that was um, a uniquely not a great experience being in a country like that at the time. And my parents were starting to warn me a bit about some of the things they were seeing in the culture. For example, sort of the propaganda aspect of certain cultural themes and collectivism and the fact that certain speech was really starting to get stifled people could lose their jobs for saying certain things or just get ousted from their tribes and there was as much as there is you know censorship in terms of you know people potentially losing their jobs from institutions and things like that i would say the self-silencing is is a bigger problem in our society but at the time i think i sort of dismissed it because i thought well we're in this western very liberal country and there's no way such a thing could happen here. And unfortunately, as we've been going forward, I've noticed that, in fact, some of the things that were happening in the Soviet Union are indeed happening here. And you can look at history in general, you know, a lot of the revolutions and things, they happened because of A small group of people, a small radical group of people who who pushed terrible ideas upon society and people, for the most part, remained silent. And I don't think it's because they agreed with these ideas. They might have even disagreed, but they didn't voice anything. Even something like the Holocaust, I would say. You know, I think most people were not necessarily keen to genocide people, but... They didn't say anything when rights were gradually being taken away from members of their population, and they were maybe even seeing some benefits for themselves. And that silence, you know, it's really a a matter of life and death. And the fact that we think we're safe in this country that's, you know, much more liberal and westernized, that can all change in in a short span of time. Because again, if we learn from history, that has been the case throughout history.
0: It's interesting, you you kind of dive into some of the psychological aspects of pylons in this book from many different people's perspectives. And I found that really interesting as someone who's also interviewed people that have gone through this experience. You write, there's a freedom to being canceled. You can say or do anything you want. So there is this sort of freedom, I think, that people talk about eventually settling over them. But there's also this period of of intense fear, crippling depression and for many a kind of lasting feeling of paranoia and an inability to trust other people. Yes. Um I've heard all of this a lot. And you you said at the beginning of the conversation that you're something of a people pleaser and you've said on the trigonometry podcast you're not a particularly disagreeable person. Neither am I. <laughs> And so I think I think there's some strange effects of having gone through a pylon. What would you say are some of those lasting effects of having having gone through that?
1: Yeah, you know what? It took me a little while to realize that there was a traumatic experience to that. You know, I think for a very long time, there's a few things that I've noticed within myself. One was I was always wondering what people were thinking what people knew of me and and how they judged that. And I feel like now I have this history behind me. And there is a worry all the time where I meet people and I and I need to be able to let go of that, but I can't say that I fully let go of that. And the other thing is, I think in the beginning, I noticed myself, I was very, very, let's say, energetic about wanting to fix every single thing in society and that I was having an issue with. And I mean, they were sort of productive things. I wanted to do this journalism project for more accountable journalism. I had this uh, idea of what I wanted to do in schools in terms of critical thinking. So I was starting these projects, but I've realized that that was just my way of coping because it's impossible for one person to solve every problem. And I think I was attacking it in this very aggressive way because it was my way, of, I guess, of regaining control and fixing things. And I guess I'm a fixer. And, you know, the book, I would say, comes out of that as well because I thought, well, if I can write this book and explain the problem to the To people particularly, you know, who were politically on my side of the aisle, because at the time I was just predominantly seeing this kind of cancel culture phenomenon coming from the left, you know, if I could show them how this problem is so large and how it affects so many Areas and then also encourage them to use their voice to, you know, stand up for people or voice things when they disagree with certain policies or when they disagree with certain ideas that are floating in the ether. We can have a better culture. So it was my way, I think, of of trying to fix things. But of course, a book takes a long time to write and then an even longer time to get out into the world. So. I think that way of coping has shifted a little bit i don't think i'm as you know for me it was a very very deeply emotional experience but now i can speak with about it with a degree of detachment and i know you know i don't see myself as a victim i just see myself as somebody who's gone through this experience and i've learned a whole lot about myself and about the world And I think it really changed me, though, in tremendous ways because I am somebody who's more willing to speak up for certain things and you know, it's really a muscle, right? I think the more you do it, the more empowered you feel, even in the beginning, after going through this experience, there were many things that I couldn't talk about still. And gradually, I don't think there is a lot that I can't talk about at this point. I'm thoughtful as to how I approach topics, because I don't want to be divisive, I want to bring people over. But I wouldn't say that I'm scared to talk about things anymore. And I've discovered that I had more of a backbone than I ever thought I did.
0: One of the stories that really stands out in your book is Kat Rosenfields. She's actually also been on this podcast. And she's great. Yeah, she's wonderful. And one of one of the things that was striking to me about her story reading it is just the fact that she called attention to the fact that this was a handful of female ringleaders spearheading the cancellation attempt on her that it is essentially female bullying. And it's a pattern I've observed as well um, and have written about recently for the, the feminist journal, Fair Disputations. Um, when Greg Luhianoff was on this podcast, we we discussed that element to it and, and Megan Daum as well. What do you make of this idea? Do you agree, do you disagree that women are driving cancel culture?
1: So I think women are disproportionately, to use that word, represented in the cancel culture movements. I don't know that they're the only ones driving it because certainly men are are quite involved as well. I think though that women, and there's a lot of literature on this as well, bullying amongst women is just more common in general. And with men, Their dominance tends to be expressed in ways that are more physical, whereas women, you know, they use words as their weapons. They use the in-group, out-group dynamic as their weapons. So I do think that this happens far more amongst women, uh, certain kinds of bullying, even with, you know, I've, I've had another smaller incident around the same time where I was being targeted by a woman and she even though men were to some degree involved, it was still spearheaded by a woman. So I do find that this kind of infighting happens more. I think the competition element might be something as well, because I've noticed that women have a tendency to compete with other women more and Not to say that men don't compete with other men, they do, but I think it's a little bit more about pushing yourself rather than pushing the person out. And I've noticed in situations where there'd be two women, for some reason, the women the two women would be pitted against each other even by other men. So I would say there's something cultural and societal where women are expected almost to compete with each other. And a lot of women fall into that dynamic instead of sort of helping each other and, and amplifying each other and lifting each other up. There is this tendency, like if there's two women, they have to immediately compete with each other. I've always seen myself in competition with myself Far more than I've seen myself in a competition with other people, so maybe I have a more masculine approach in, in that way. Because I am, I have discovered this is another thing I've discovered about myself, relatively late in life, is that I am very competitive. But you know, my comp- way of competing tends to be about me pushing myself to the most that I can get to, to the highest level of I that I can get to, rather than trying to push someone out. But women, it, it, it is it is an unfortunate part of our culture that I do think women have this mean girl mentality for the most part that dominates the culture. So it does encourage, you know, it does feed into that cancel culture side of things, which is really unfortunate.
0: Picking up on your your thread about personality characteristics. So for this book, you talked to some high profile people, including Peter Bogosian, who became famous for for publishing satirical academic papers in unsuspecting (laughs) academic journals, the grievance studies (laughs) scandal, as as well as uh, Mumford and Sons banjoist Winston Marshall, who's actually also been on this show. But you also wrote about some relative unknowns, like Christopher Wells, a student at UBC. But thinking about the bigger picture About the interviews you conducted sort of across this broad range of subjects, what do you see as the common denominator here? Like, what do you think it is, personality-wise, that allows some people to stand up to the mob um, and speak out, even though they know in the climate we're in right now, there's going to be consequences to their social lives, their professional lives, their economic lives.
1: Yeah, the biggest threat that I notice is that I think people have a tendency to think that they're just brave or courageous in some way. And I wouldn't I wouldn't say that that was the pattern that I've observed. The the common thread that I found is this very strong adherence to principles. It's it's more about morality, them feeling that something is the right thing to do. And thinking that no matter what the consequence is, they have to do it. So they didn't speak because they were trying to go against the grain. They really spoke because they felt like they had no other choice but to do that because that was the right thing to do. And I think that was really very much the common thread in all these people that I interviewed. And I tried to balance it where there's definitely – individuals in the book where everybody's going to know their names and some people weren't even canceled and they just provide interesting context to the conversation. But I also wanted to take in some stories that would, you know, were more ordinary people, if you will, people who didn't necessarily become famous after this. Because I think one thing that people really don't understand is that you hear the stories where people were successful, right? They've managed to somehow persevere and get through it. But there's so many more stories that I won't even hear about because because those people have never gotten their stories out. Those people had their lives successfully ruined. And there's far more of those stories than there are of the stories of, you know, of the people sort of in the spotlight. And even one of the people in my own book, as I was getting closer to publication date and was going through some of the fact-checking process and and making sure that things were up to date, you know, I was very sad to discover that it did not have a happy ending. Because my original version of one of the stories had a much better ending than it ultimately ended up with. And that was very, very sad to hear, uh, to to find out.
0: Is it the knitting influencer, I'm guessing? It is. That. It's the yeah. knitting, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm, I mean, I wonder with all of this, one thing I'm not sure people understand is just how short the online storm typically is now the the consequences can't be long lasting especially economic yeah. as may have been the case with the, the knitting influencer but but the actual deluge of messages typically only lasts a few weeks. And as you point out in the book, if you can withstand those couple weeks, you're usually okay. Now, the title of the book is No Apologies. You did not apologize during your mob pylon. Why do you think it's so important to to not apologize?
1: You know, it's funny too, since uh, we're both Canadians, we know how Canadians do like to apologize. And I, in particular, am guilty of that. Like if somebody steps on my foot, I end up apologizing and then I reflect back on it. And I think, why in the world did I apologize for someone else stepping on my foot, which is a, a pretty good parallel to what's happening in the world. Cause people tend to apologize because they want the mob to go away or because they genuinely think that, Oh, maybe they have a point and they don't have the convictions of their own uh, positions, particularly because be- they're being bullied for it. So to me, you're right. You know, if you can wither the storm for a couple of weeks, people's attention spans are remarkably short, and they're going to move on to the next target in no time. They probably won't even remember <laughs> that they've engaged in this. But the reason that I don't believe in apologizing if you didn't do anything wrong, which I, by the way, very much agree, people should apologize and take responsibility if they have. But if you don't believe that what you've done is wrong, then you owe it to the idea even of what you're defending or what your statement is to defend it and not to cower. And when you give up to the mob, not only does it empower them and it gives bloodthirst to them (laughs) or feeds their bloodthirst, I think it actually fosters this kind of culture where they feel like they can continuously go after people. And that is one of the reasons that I don't believe in apologizing. It's it's one, defend your idea, defend your position if you believe in it. And two, don't cave to them because that only feeds the mob and it makes the problem, in my view, much bigger. And then they go after the next person and the next person and everyone's forced to apologize. So... Don't apologize if you don't mean it.
0: Another thing, Kat Rosenfield said in the book that really has stayed with me is tribelessness is a superpower. That's definitely how I feel about it too. But I do think it takes a lot of conscious effort to to stay in that. You know, one thing I wonder about reading the book is the danger of becoming reactionary because some of the behavior you are describing is. So bizarre and so outrageous. It is, I think, sometimes hard to stand your ground to not get pulled into conflicts. And as well, as we know, the algorithms reward overreaction. So how do you think through that occupational hazard?
1: Yeah, I've thought about that a lot. So first, I do want to touch on communities because I think the fact that, um, I think a lot of this happens because people want to belong to a tribe and they're afraid of losing that tribe. Sometimes they're more afraid of that than, say, losing their jobs. That's why people remain silent. That's why people are afraid to say what they really think. So that's a really big part of the problem. And as you sort of see, even in some of the stories in the books, the people who Recover best from it are people who are able to build their own communities, their own, you know, friendship groups where they don't really care about these outside mobs. They care about, you know, what their close friends think, but they don't care about these outsiders that shouldn't really have any say in their lives. And I think that's uh, uh, builds a certain resilience. But you're also very much correct in that there is a reactionary element, particularly with this whole cancel culture thing. I've really observed it a lot. I've seen a lot of people that I respected and liked become very, very much radicalized because I think it's a it's in a way it's a reaction to trauma and and it's this very forceful dislike of the group that maybe went after them. And like you said, the algorithms do tend to amplify certain kinds of narratives and they and people tend to go more on their side the stronger they push back against some of these ideas. But often they're pushing back in ways that I at least I don't think are are particularly constructive. They're pushing in ways that are, you know, I, I think are destructive to both them and the ideas that they're trying to espouse. Because maybe, maybe I'm too naive, but I would like to have people rethink how they behave. And I want to be able to connect with them. I don't want to say preach just to the converted. And that's what I've been trying very hard to do. And there was a temptation, I think, probably right after my my own experience with this, I probably did push back a lot harder on some of these ideas, and I probably bought into some of the narratives, and I had to really self-reflect and not become beholden to my own audience, not to be, as they say, audience captured. And I think that continuous reflection is incredibly, incredibly important. But unfortunately, you know, that isn't isn't the way that a lot of people have gone, and I hope they sort of self-reflect at a certain point point, come back, because... I think I've balanced out more over time rather than gotten more radical, but you know, I'm sure some people will disagree with that.
0: I wanna just end on this idea of speaking up today. And I think there's a really important caveat in your book, which is made by Katie Herzog, which is we also have to consider material obligations. I mean, we can't demand that someone who's a single mom working precarious work is going to put their livelihood on the line for some of this stuff. So I think we, we do have to make that caveat. But also, there really is something about the need for people to speak openly about this stuff in public continuously. So I'm going to ask you a question that one of your subjects asked you in the book. And this is, I believe, the knitting influencer. (laughs) What price does society pay when, when people are silent?
1: That was an excellent question that really resonated with me. In my view, the price that society pays is... Allowing the most radical voices amongst us, the bullies, to dictate how our society works and what it looks like and who is punished and who is not and whose voice is heard and what is, whose voice is not. Why would you want somebody who is abhorrent, I would say, in their behavior, somebody whose views are the most radical, why would you want those people to dictate what our society looks like? And by absolving ourselves of the responsibility to speak, we allow them to have that voice, that very critical voice that shapes our society. And I see that as an incredible danger. And if you look throughout history, that has led to deaths, right, ultimately. So I don't know if we're heading that way in Western society, but we are certainly showing signs of that. And it's important to react to that early instead of let it get to a point where it might be too late to react. Or, you know, the cost right now might be a loss of tribe. The cost right now might be a loss of jobs. But later on, the cost is just going to increase. And it can potentially become the cost of your own life or the lives of others. And is that a price you're willing to pay for your silence?
0: I think this work is really interesting. I think the kind of research you've done here is important. And I think this is a phenomenon that we're going to be talking about for decades from now. Sadly, and, <laughs> sadly exactly. But I do hope that the conversation in years to come will be, you know, how did this happen? And I do feel optimistic that the tide is turning and and part of why i feel optimistic is is this kind of conversation this kind of research. So Catherine thank you so much for your book and thank you for coming on the show today.
1: Thank you so much for having me and i very much hope that this phenomenon is turning around and one good thing about you know one one grain of hope that i have is that i do see more people talking about it and being sort of fed up with the status quo that we're currently seeing. So i do hope that it that it shifts and uh, I think it's it's uh, critical for our survival in some ways.
0: Well, thank you again for coming on the show. Thank you. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. You can also support our work by reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts.